I think one of the fears we have is not being loved. And this fear of not being loved comes from a number of places, but one being you don't feel that you're worthy of love. You may never have received it from a parent, or you emphasize all of the ways that you fail and mess up, but a lot of us can relate to the feeling of not being worthy of love, and then this fear of not being loved, because you know you're not worthy of it. And to be honest, when I think about death, I do think about that sometimes, one of the things that would frighten me about death, of course, as Christians, we know our hope beyond death, but it would be tragic to me to die being unloved, wouldn't it? That nobody cared that you passed on. And I think having that thought terrifies, it terrifies me. And then it makes you wonder, am I loved? How do I get to be loved? And, and when you can have this perspective, we can actually kind of work against ourselves by having this desire to have people love us, we can then begin to live life in a way that tries to attract and lure people toward ourselves. Because I want to be loved, so I've got to become the person that's lovable. I've got to do things that make people look at me and think about me all the time. And now I'm actually working against myself because I'm putting myself in the center of the universe, which is equally as tragic. And I would hate to die that way too. <laughs> so somewhere in the middle, we've got to land. See, this fear of being unloved can actually reduce us to being less than who we are in God. And we forget who we are in God. It's one of our problems. We forget that we love him because he first loved us. And it all begins there. God first loved us. Don't ever forget that. Before you proved yourself, before you did anything to ruin your hopes or to secure your hopes, God loved you first. And we live life in response to something he enacted. And I hope that we can get a sense of that as we look at this dark graphic picture in Ezekiel 16. Shall we go? Um, warning, it may shock. The English is very soft. I don't read Hebrew, but I read commentaries who read Hebrew. <laughs> they say that the English translations have toned this way down, that this is next to pornographic in its language, and that a priest saying these words to the people of Israel would have blushed pretty red. Um, chapter 23 echoes what you're about to read in this, and it's as worse, if not even worse. So uh, just know that we're reading a very soft version. And the reason a prophet of God, who would have been a priest of God, is saying these things is exactly to shock you out of the being lulled to sleep by the status quo. Israel right now, um, they're suffering in Jerusalem, and they're denying that Babylon is going to wipe them out. They're like, God's not going to judge us. And Ezekiel, over in Babylon, a thousand miles away, is trying to say, yes, he is going to judge you. He already took some of us to Babylon. He's going to take the rest of you. Stop lying to each other. Stop listening to the prophets. They're saying, it's all good. Peace, peace. When there is no peace, 
It's bad. And so what Ezekiel has to do is he has to reach for some graphic imagery to get their attention. Wake up! It's that bad. So, here we go. By the way, some people think that this is actually um, fairy tales. That He's actually pulling on folk tales from the time and amending them to the message he wants to say, which would have been even more surprising for the people like, oh, we know the story of the little mermaid, and then all of a sudden the ending's different. And like, what? That would really get your attention, wouldn't it? All right, chapter 16, verse 1. And the word of Yahweh came to me, son of man, it's Ezekiel, make known to Jerusalem her abominations and say, thus says the Lord Yahweh to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites, your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. Right there is the first blow to the Jewish ear. Wait, Abraham's not our father? Nope. He roots him in the pagan land of Canaan. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut. Nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of the compassion of you for you. But you were cast out on the open field. You, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. Your mother didn't want you. And your father didn't step in to save you. So the baby's born. The, the, the imagery here is that the placenta is still attached. And just like that, just born and left out into the field for the vultures or the wild dogs. No one even bothered to wipe anything off of the baby. None of the normal protocols. This was an unwanted child with no hope. But in verse 6, when I, this is God speaking through Ezekiel, when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed And your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. Verse 8. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. Do you remember in the book of Ruth? Ruth goes in and creeps in. Not what you want your kids to do, but she creeps into Boaz's um, um, threshing floor and sleeps next to him at his feet at night. And he covers her with the, with the corner of his blanket. This was a symbolic act of betrothal. So God is saying here to this child being Israel, whom he has rescued and raised up. She's now of age to be married and he is betrothing himself to her. So he's the rescuer and now the husband. And it continues. We're still in the middle of verse 8. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord Yahweh. And you became mine. 
no regret, right? There's nothing like, yeah, I tolerated you, you're ugly, and I rescued you, and you're deformed, or whatever. Like, no, it's just pure love being expressed here. Just pure delight to rescue this child, now to marry her. Then, verse 9, I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose. I know, it may not be your style, but in the time... (laughs) The chain around your neck, ring in your nose. But at the time, this, what is being described here is a, a, a place of importance. She's not just his wife, but there's actually royal symbolism being laid on here. And some of the language of the linen is actually what the, the priests would wear in the temple. So this is some of the best clothing that an Israelite could be adorned in. And so she's gone from this rejected baby to not only saved, not only um, married, but now being elevated to the status of royalty, as you'll continue to see. So I put a chain on your neck, verse 12, I put a ring in your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk embroidered cloth. And you ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed, I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord Yahweh. A rags to riches story. Almost like Cinderella. You know, Ella who worked in the cinders of the house as a slave. Hence her name, Cinderella. And then meets the prince. Finds out, I'm actually a princess. And you could say the story ended happily ever after. That's how Cinderella would end right there. She found her prince. She grew in beauty. But unfortunately, we've only scratched the first quarter of this chapter. And the rest is a very dark and twisted tale of what if Cinderella came back and shunned the prince she met and decided that she wanted a different sort of life? What if she started to live like her evil stepsisters? Well, this is what Israel does. Verse 15. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore. The like has never been nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and my silver, which I had given to you. And made yourself images of men, and with them played the whore. And you took the embroidered garments to cover them, and set my oil and my incense before them. Also my bread that I gave you, I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey. You set before them for a pleasing aroma. And so it was, declares the Lord Yahweh. And you took your sons and your daughters whom you had borne to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. 
Were your whorings so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? And in all your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember. You did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood. They did not remember the beautiful love story that we had just covered. It's as if they had forgotten that they actually were worthy of love. Maybe not. No. That they were given love. That here God loved her first, yet she forgets and decides, wait a minute, I'm unloved. I'm unlovable. Maybe all she remembered is that she was rejected by her parents. And now she's working, she's hustling, she's doing everything she can to earn love from everybody around. And she's actually diminishing herself in the process. I want us to back up and look at this beautiful love story so we can actually grasp how severe this is and the fact that we are in danger of doing the same thing. But yes, the imagery is graphic. You're like, I haven't been a whore before. Great, I'm glad. But we play this spiritually often, I fear. If you guys will hold your place here and go over to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. I think you will hear how dangerously similar our story is. Ephesians chapter 2, it's in the New Testament. Um, Go eat popcorn. It's Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So look for the E and go eat popcorn. (laughs) Ephesians chapter 2, Paul, the great apostle, writes. Now this is a mirror teaching of what we just read in Ezekiel. 2 verse 1. You, Christian, you were dead. In the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul goes as far as Ezekiel, just with less detail. He says, you were dead. And and Ezekiel says to Israel, you were dead. You were as good as dead, wallowing in your blood. And unless God had come by and said, live, live, then you would have died there. And Paul says, you were as good as dead in your sins and trespasses. And he includes the whoredom here. He says, because you were dead, because you had no understanding that anybody in the universe cared about you or loved you, you went with whatever your body wanted to do. You followed the devil's schemes to live because you thought this is how to be loved. This is how to become somebody. This is how to fit in with the people around me. This is who I'm supposed to be. And so we went down that course, Paul says, and we were dead in that. But then remember in Ezekiel, God comes by and sees us wallowing in our blood and says, live. And so in Ephesians 2, verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And by grace, you have been saved. 
He said to the baby, live. He said to us, live. He's made us alive with Christ. And then, and then more than that, that would be enough. But more than that, that baby that was rescued grew up. And God took her as his bride and adorned her with a crown and all of the lavish uh, attire of a princess. And then Paul says, the same has happened to us. We have been elevated to royal status. Ephesians continues in verse 6. He raised us up with Christ and seated us with Christ in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He seated us with Christ, who's at the right hand of the king of the universe. We are made royalty, and he's lavished us. The word grace there, the idea is he's given us gifts. Grace in Greek means gift. He's given us the gifts that a son or a daughter of royalty would be given from the king. And so as that child was lavished with with wonderful royal riches in Ezekiel, we have been in Christ. And the whole purpose is so that we may walk in his purposes. Well, God had a plan for this child, Israel, that he raised and lavished with royalty so that she would be first among the nations. But she instead forgot and played the whore. The question is, where are we? We've received this. Maybe this is your story here in Ephesians. But are we walking in the good works that God has prepared for us? Or are we like, oh, yeah, 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 that Jesus stuff. Now I'm going to go hustle for love. I'm going to get people to notice me. I'm going to get accepted in this club, that gang, these people. I want the world to think that I belong. Well, that's the good news. Israel's problem in verse 15, we're back to Ezekiel 16, 15. You trusted in your beauty. I raised you up. You were nothing. This was all grace. I gave it to you. I made you beautiful. And then you trusted in that beauty. What I gave you, you took and said, oh, great. Thanks. I don't need you anymore. I've got it now. I've got the beauty I was striving for. I'm going to flaunt this around so people notice. That's what she's done. So I'm going to come back to this. This is such a pivotal verse, verse 15. Um, We're going to go through and see how dreadful the rest gets, and then we're going to come back to this, if that's okay. So we saw that she becomes a whore. She did not remember the days of her youth in verse 22. And then in verse 23, And after all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, declares the Lord Yahweh, you built yourself a vaulted chamber, and made yourself a lofty place in every square. So people insecure, that feel unworthy of love, that are looking for acceptance, this is what they do. They build stuff up. Look at me, this lofty place. I want people to walk by and notice. 
And we see this in the things they try to accomplish. They work and they work and they work to try to build something up. They, um, they talk a big game about who they are so that you admire them, you respect them. They may talk a lot. They may use a lot of words. A lot of words so that you always know where they are. You always think there's someone special. Always hiding the flaws. Hustling for love. The fear of being unloved. So Israel begins to build a lofty place in every square. Verse 25, at the head of every street, you built your lofty place and made your beauty an abomination, offering yourself to any passerby and multiplying your whoring. You also played the whore with the Egyptians. So here's where we get down to earth, where we see how has Israel played the whore? Well, first with Egypt, that place God rescued Israel from. Yeah, they went back to the Egyptians and wanted to make love with them. They wanted the Egyptians to partner with them, to protect them. Forget Yahweh. He can't do that for us. We need the Egyptians to be on our side. So you played the whore with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, multiplying your whoring to provoke me to anger. Behold, therefore, I stretched out my hand against you and diminished your allotted portion and delivered you to the greed of your enemies, the daughters of the Philistines who were ashamed of your lewd behavior. Whoa. If you remember from our study in the books of Moses, Leviticus and Deuteronomy specifically went into great detail about how the sexual perversions amongst the Philistines in the land of Canaan, the promised land, it was so bad that God gave us a gross list of things they're doing, then said, Israel, you shall not do this. If you do this, the land will vomit you out. And that's partly why I want you to take these people out of this land is because they have become so lewd, so loose with their lust that they're sleeping with, you know, their own parents, with siblings, with animals. It was really disgusting list of things that was mentioned. And here Ezekiel says that even the Philistines were ashamed of Israel's lewd behavior. If you can make the Philistines blush, I don't want to call it talent, but I guess it's talent. That's not easy to do. Now, relying on Egypt politically is that whoring. To God it is. Because here's what happened. When you became allied, allied with another nation, it was not just, hey, let's not beat each other up. Let's work together against the enemy. It began with that. But it also included trading and sometimes exchanging spouses. You know, you're not going to attack you might attack your in-laws, but you may not, you're not going to attack your daughter whom you gave over to the other nation, right? You're just not going to do that. So it would be a symbol of we're together, we're now one family. Our nations are one family. And so Israel becoming one family with the Egyptians, the ones that God said, I delivered you from the house of bondage, you shall see these people no more. Now you're going back and becoming family with them. But it went beyond that. It also meant you exchanged gods. To be one nation together meant that we will give some devotion to your gods and you give some devotion to our gods. And so, yeah, Yahweh's pretty upset that they would lean upon Egypt with this kind of alliance. And it gets worse because there's more. In verse 28, you played the whore also with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. Oh, did Egypt not satisfy you? Try the Assyrians. They're even better, right? Yes, you played the whore with them, and still you were not satisfied. So where do they go next? You multiplied your whorings also with the trading land of Chaldea, the Babylonians. And even with this, you were not satisfied. 
how sick is your heart? Declares the Lord Yahweh, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute, building your vaulted chamber at the head of every street and making your tent, uh, I'm sorry, and making your lofty place in every square, yet you were not like a prostitute. So it's gross enough as it is, but here's where it gets worse. You were not a prostitute because you scorned payment. Now, I hope I have to explain to you (laughs) that... (laughs) The way prostitution works is that they get money for their services rendered. Israel's playing the prostitute, and they're not getting anything out of it. They're actually paying lovers to come to them. That's what you're about to read. Because you scorn payment. Verse 32, adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Men give, you, uh, men give gifts to all prostitutes. But you gave your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. That's desperate. It's not just saying I'm open for whoever. It's saying, please, please, please have me. Please, I want all of you guys to love me. I'm so insecure. This is getting very sick and desperate. That's why verse 30 says, how sick is your heart? 34, so you are different from other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore. No one pressured you to do this. No one said you had to. And you gave payment. Well, no payment was given to you. Therefore, you were different. Now, God asked Israel to be different. He asked them to be holy, to be set apart. That's what holy means, to be set apart, to be different. You're going to the land of the Philistines. Live differently. Be the light of the world. You're to be the first among the nations to show them how God intended humanity to live. So yes, be different. And then Israel's like, okay. And they took different to a whole nother level. We'll be, be a different sort of prostitute. Verse 35. Therefore, O prostitute, hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says the Lord Yahweh, because your lust was poured out and your nakedness uncovered in your whorings with your lovers and with all your abominable idols, and because of the blood of your children that you gave to them, therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those you loved and all those you hated. I will gather them against you from every side and I and will uncover your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. In other words, they're going to be exposed for who they are. It's going to be shameful. In verse 38, And I will judge you as women who commit adultery and shed blood are judged. In other words, Do you remember how the law condemns an adulterous woman or a murderer? You stone them. You kill them. So this is Israel's death sentence. I will judge you according to that way. And bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy. Verse 39. I will give you into their hands, and they shall throw down your vaulted chamber and break down your lofty places. They shall strip you of your clothes and take your beautiful jewels and leave you naked and bare. They shall bring up a crowd against you and they shall stone you and put you and cut you to pieces with their swords. And they shall burn your houses and execute judgments upon you in the sight of many women. I will make you stop playing the whore and you shall also give payment no more. So will I satisfy my wrath on you, and my jealousy shall depart from you. I will claim, I will calm, I I will be calm, and will be 
no more angry. Because you have not remembered the days of your youth, but have enraged me with all these things. Therefore, behold, I have returned your deeds upon your head, declares the Lord Yahweh. Have you not committed a lewdness in addition to all your abominations? Second time he says, because you've not remembered the days of your youth. I have said before, um, I think the last time I said it was the last time we taught it, that Ephesians is possibly the most important book in the Bible. And there's a number of reasons for that. But, um, I mean, not only does it have literally everything in it, but it tells you who you are so you don't forget the days of your youth. And I think a dose of Ephesians every now and then is what we need to remember where we've come from, who we are, lest we get desperate to be loved by the wrong people and the wrong things. And you know what always happens? Israel decides, this is how I get love. I become a whore. We do the same thing. This is how I get love. I become funnier. So we work at trying to be funny and we're not really being ourselves. Or I get... Uh, more possessions so that the people with possessions feel like I'm one of them. Or we, we, we try to become people or display images that we aren't really. We start playing parts. That's what happens when we are not remembering the love that God has shown us and given to us. That's already ours. We start performing for people. We start doing what we need to do, becoming what we need to become in order to buy admiration. Ephesians is very helpful to remind us who we really, really are. And verse 44. So, we've seen what Israel's been up to. To go back to Cinderella, I said, imagine if Cinderella forgets her prince and returns to the drudge house she lives in and actually becomes like her evil stepsisters. Well, actually, in the story, that's what happens. We find out that Israel had two evil sisters. And we're going to see how she rates compared to these two sisters. And it's shocking and it's, frankly, offensive to be compared this way. So verse 44. Behold, everyone who uses Proverbs will use this proverb against you. Like mother, like daughter. You are the daughter of your mother who loathed her husband and her children. And... You are the sister of your sisters who loathed their husband and their children. Your mother was a Hittite and your father an Amorite. And your elder sister is Samaria who lived with her daughters to the north of you. Samaria. Now you might remember after King Solomon uh, brought the kingdom of Israel to the height of its glory, built the temple, had so much gold coming into the nation that silver was considered something you pave your driveway with. And when you're plowing snowstorm after snowstorm off of it and you chip it, you're like, eh, it's just silver. At least I didn't pave it in gold. Like, this was how wealthy the kingdom had become. Um, but when he died, his, his son was foolish and caused the kingdom to separate. And he took... Jerusalem, basically, and an upstart Jeroboam took the rest of everyone and created the kingdom of Samaria. So that's what Samaria is. It's the rebel tribes of Israel. And the first thing Jeroboam did when he became king over the rebel tribes of Israel was, guess what? He built golden calves 
the ones that Israel worshipped in the wilderness because they wanted to go back to Egypt. Those golden calves, he brings Egypt right into their kingdom. That's Samaria. And they fell a hundred years before this text. They had already been slaughtered by the Assyrians and completely spread around the globe, never to return. Israel, Jerusalem, you think that you're all that because you survived the Assyrian attack? You're next. You're just like your sister Samaria. And, we're in the middle of verse 46, the other sister. And your younger sister, who lived to the south of you, is Sodom. Sodom as in Sodom and Gomorrah. The place that was so horrendous that not even Abraham could convince God to spare the city. That Sodom. So, Jerusalem, you're just like Samaria, conquered and defeated. Just like Sodom, conquered and defeated. 47. Not only did you walk in their ways and do according to their abominations, within a very little time, you were more corrupt than they in all your ways. As I live, declares the Lord Yahweh, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. Samaria has not committed half your sins, and you have committed more abominations than they, and have made your sisters appear righteous by all the abominations that you have committed. Whoa. So not only have they made the Philistines blush at their lewdness, now they make Sodom and Gomorrah look righteous. This is taking wickedness to a whole new level. 52. Bear your disgrace, you also, for you have intervened on behalf of your sisters. Because of your sins in which you acted more abominably than they, they are more in the right than you. So be ashamed, you also, and bear your disgrace, for you have made your sisters appear righteous. 53. I will restore their fortunes, both the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters, and the fortunes of Samaria and her daughters. And I will restore your own fortunes in their midst, that you may bear your disgrace and be ashamed of all that you have done, becoming a consolation to them. As for your sisters, Sodom and her daughters shall return to their former state. And Samaria and her daughters shall return to their former state. And you and your daughters shall return to your former state. Was not your sister Sodom a byword in your mouth in the day of your pride? <laughs> Sodom, can you believe how they ended? We'll never be like that. Before your wickedness was uncovered, now you have become an object of reproach for the daughters of Syria and all those around her, and the daughters of the Philistines, those all around who despise you. You bear the penalty of your lewdness and your abominations, declares Yahweh. Whoa. Okay, so now we're learning. Now we're learning that Sodom and Samaria will be restored. They're coming back. How is, now, 
this is Ezekiel really getting the point to the Jews that, guys, stop holding on to, we're God's promised people. Yeah, Samaria fell. It proved that they weren't the chosen ones. We are. Like, your arrogance, you are doomed to fall. You're actually worse than they because you were given every privilege. God chose you, rescued you out of your blood. He made you a princess. And this, this is what you've done. You've used your crown to buy off lovers, or uh, buy off, or I guess buy in, I'm not sure, you know, to, to track them. You abused the gifts of God. You tarnished his glory. So, despite all this, despite all this, it's amazing. If this was all shocking, the next verses are even more shocking. The way this ends. This is true grace. 59. For thus says the Lord Yahweh, I will deal with you as you have done, you who have despised the oath and breaking the covenant, yet, remember you were dead and your sins and trespasses, but God, this yet is like that but God, yet I will remember. Or maybe more like yet I will remember. Remember, you didn't remember, but I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. And I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger, and I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you and you shall know that I am Yahweh, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame when I atone for you all that you have done, declares the Lord Yahweh. Atone. That's the word designated for the day of atonement, the day when God made him and his people at one. That's what atone means, right? At one. The two that have been separated come together. A challenge here is just this thought of, okay, we can revel in the grace of God that will take us back, even if we've done what Israel's done. He says, I have, I have not forgotten. I have never forgotten. Though you've forgotten, I've never forgotten. And I want to restore you and take you back, and I will. I will. You say, yay, Yes! But one of the sobering realities is that when we come back and we see that he also brought back him and her? Samaria and Sodom? Seriously? There's a reason Jesus taught us that unless we forgive others, we will not be forgiven. It's because if we can't practice forgiving the wrongs of others, we will never be able to receive God's forgiveness for our wrongs. Imagine this. Just replace Samaria and Sodom with, well, you know him or her in your head, right? That person, or relative or whatever, or boss, and, and Hitler. Just put them together. And God is inviting you back after all your sins. You're the prodigal son. You've come back. You're weeping. You're confessing. And you look up. And then you see Hitler and them smiling, saying, come join us. 
If you have a hard time forgiving others, you'll never say, you'll say, I do not want that God. If that God can take those people, I want none of it. I want none of it. And this is why it's important. It's why Jesus emphasized in the Sermon on the Mount, we must learn to forgive others. Because we will refuse God if we consider that he accepts the people I don't. But here's the reality. Here's the reality is that we often minimize our sin and think theirs is worse. But to be honest, if you were given the resources that maybe Hitler was given in the time and the mindset he had, maybe you would have done the same. You just think that I couldn't do that because you just don't have the power. What if you had the power? What if you had the power to do what you wanted to people you don't like? What if, I know you've thought it when you watch the news. What if you had the power to do what you wanted to that other political party? Let's be honest. And we just toy with that, but there's no end to the wickedness we can do if we were given the leash. We need to recognize that our journey is no different than Israel's. That we've played the whore with so many disgusting things that God would just, that God, we've just broken his heart. And to think everything he's done, that we, we, were, we were wallowing in our blood, left to die, the jackals. We belonged to the jackals and the vultures. And yet he came and with, there was nothing to gain from. He's just like, ew. If you saw that, you would, well, you definitely wouldn't marry it. You might rescue it, but you wouldn't marry it. Ew. But God chose to know what would come out of it and adorned his glory upon this child. He adorned his glory upon us. That's why we went to Ephesians so that we wouldn't isolate this text and say, oh, this is just about Israel. Those Jews just can never get their act together. God showed us we have the same story. We were in that state and he went out of his way for us. And then if we are honest with ourselves, we've played the same whore. We've played it over and over because we forget, we forget the true acceptance and belonging we have through Christ and God. And so let's just use an example. Let's say I keep forgetting who I am in Christ. So therefore, I'm going to work super hard to preach and wow people because I feel insecure. That's what happens, right? Or we begin to serve not because... We begin to serve because we feel like that's who I am. I've replaced my identity in Christ with this identity that I'm a servant. I do important things. And when we lose sight of who we really are, we start to identify ourselves. They're good things, but we start to identify ourselves with what we do. And then as soon as people attack that or criticize that or we come up short or somebody else is doing better, we get grumpy, we get grouchy, we get defensive. We start to have to, we feel like we have to prove or promote ourselves or protect our status. And we get vicious. This is, this is when we get in the flesh. It's because we're identifying what's, we're identifying who we are, not in the grace that God has given to us, but in the things we can wrap around our lives and say, this is me. You know, it can be very dangerous. I'm just using myself as an example because I know myself. It can be very dangerous if I start to associate, I'm a pastor. I teach the Bible. I am a high school Bible teacher. Because the minute somebody says, you're not that good of a teacher, you just basically attacked my being because I wrapped myself up in that identity. Good identity, right? Nothing wrong. Or I'm a father, a good father. (laughs) And then someone who's been staying with us for a few days says, I noticed your parenting style. Ooh, instantly defensive, right? What are they going to say? You like to use a lot of threats. 
Are you judging me? Huh? No, I'm a good dad. Like, you know, that's what happens. We forget. Even when we're saying it and hearing it, we forget that I am none of these labels. I am none of these things. I am the beloved of the one who found me in my blood, washed me off, put clothes on me, raised me up, and betrothed himself to me and gave me a crown. That's who I am. You can take everything else away. That stays. You cannot touch that. And of course, you know, we watch, you, you go on social media for any amount of time and you recognize this happening live time. Someone posts something, someone comments, and then other people come. Everyone has to have a say. and speak. Why? Because we have to feel seen. We're reaching for love. Whether it's our defending our status or it's trying to be heard. No, no, no. This is why my political stance is better than yours. Got to be heard. Why? Because you forgot that you're loved. Even if nobody noticed you, would you be okay with the love you have in God? These are challenging questions about getting to the core of who we are. And so I come back to, because this is the turning verse, chapter 16, verse 15. Verse 15 is where it all turns, right? You became more beautiful than anyone, then it says, but you trusted in your beauty and played the whore. Because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby, your beauty became his. You trusted in your beauty. What, what are we trusting in today? Do I trust in the fact that I, uh, I've been trained to interpret the Bible? Do I trust in that? That's trusting in my beauty. Right? We can just etch out the word beauty and put something else in there. You trusted in your wealth. You trusted in your status. You trusted in your ability. You trusted in your degree. You trusted in your relationships. You can put so many things in place of beauty. What are you trusting in? What are you using to grab the attention of those that walk by? When we do that, we're playing the whore. Then, your beauty became his. End of verse 15. Your beauty became his. So when they trusted in their beauty and tried to gather attention, that beauty that they used to attract became that person's beauty. And here's a truth. Here's a truth about worship. What worship is, is the exchange of beauty. It's the exchange of glory. It's the exchange of life. So when I come and worship God, I'm exchanging my beauty for his. That's what worship is. I'm exchanging my identity for his. I'm exchanging my life for his. My glory for his. And that's why worshiping God is so fulfilling and enriching and enlarging is because we're taking our puny selves, giving it to him, and he's giving us his eternal self and giving it to us, and we feel fulfilled. And that's why when Israel worships um, or lusts after Egypt, Assyria, and Chaldea, it says you are not satisfied three times. You are not satisfied, not satisfied, not satisfied. Why? Because you're taking your beauty and exchanging it for theirs, and it's not going to satisfy you because it's the same if not worse. If she's the most beautiful and she's exchanging that for these countries, she's diminishing herself. Hence, I said at the beginning, fear of being unloved will reduce you because you will continually exchange your beauty for that which you want to notice you. This is why God hates idolatry so much is because we are exchanging what he's given us and giving it to something worthless and taking that worthlessness upon ourselves. Go to Psalm, please, if you will, Psalm 115. This is what this chapter tells us. It tells you what I just told you. 
Psalm chapter 115. Psalms is in the middle-ish of the Bible. 115 is, well, it's in Psalm after 114. Um, 115. Not to us, Yahweh, not to us, but to your name give glory. There's, a, there's, this, there's this establishment of we worship Yahweh. We want to exchange glory with him for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Now, the answer in verse 3 is, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. I think the New King James says, he does whatever he pleases. Love that phrase. Just does whatever he wants. Verse 4, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. Speaking of Ephesians, uh, Paul takes that exact phrase, the work of human hands, and attributes that to the circumcision that the Jews are proud of. Do you see what he's doing? He's saying, their circumcision is an idol to them. So Gentiles, don't let them use that against you. It's kind of cool. I just, it's just, we were talking about Ephesians, it came to my head. Um, but their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. You trust in these idols, you become like them. Why? Because you're exchanging your glory, your beauty for their glory and beauty. So if they're mute, deaf, dumb, and blind, you will become too. It's been said another way, you become what you behold. Or you become what you love. It's all the same thing here. You're trusting in this. You trusted in your beauty, Israel, and you gave your beauty to them. And it's the same here in Psalm 115. Don't trust in these idols. So the admonition is instead to trust who? Yeah, verse 9. O Israel, trust in Yahweh. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in Yahweh. He is their help and their shield. You who fear Yahweh, trust in Yahweh. He is their help and their shield. Yahweh has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He'll bless the house of Aaron. He'll bless those who fear Yahweh, both small and great. And so, that is the importance here of Israel. But you trusted in your beauty, and your beauty became theirs. That's what happens. So we can't trust in our beauty. We have to trust in God's beauty. We have to trust in his glory. We have to trust in his being. That is how this works. So we want to remember 1 John 4.19. We love him because he first loved us. I did not work up to this love, right? I did not buy his love with all of my glory. I did not build these lavish whore tents, you know, what Israel's doing in all the streets, it said, to get his attention, I did not become super. I did not walk X amount of people across, the, help dogs cross the freeway or give cats whiskers that lost theirs. Like, I didn't do all these things to get God's attention. He loved me. That's why I love him. There's no other. You were the baby wallowing in your blood. I was the helpless one in the wilderness. And he said, live and put the crown on my head. 
That's the bottom line. It's the only thing I can do is respond to him in love because he's already done it. Friends, love is done to us. It's not something that we do to God. Love is something God does to us. And so rather than working for it or climbing for it or hustling for it or trying to become worthy of it, it's our job to simply fall into it. It's our job to fall in love with God. I know, Cinderella and all, and it sounds hokey, oh, fall in love. No, but think about the phrase. It's something you fall into. With God, I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. I didn't make it happen. It was there. And somewhere along the way, I sinned my way and fell into it. We fall into it. How do we do this? By letting go. The way you fall into love is you let go of who you think you need to be, of who you think you are. I'm holding on to this, but I can't fall into love until I let go. And then I slip right in to that love which is greater, larger, deeper, thicker, more satisfying, more amazing, more eternal and infinite than anything else I was holding on to. And that's the difference between trusting. Israel trusted in her beauty, you trusting in your beauty or fill in the blank, versus trusting in his love. Trusting in his love lets us let go so that we fall in love. And that, that is what the world needs. So stop trying to earn love and becoming all these false things to get love. We need a church that falls in love and helps others fall into the same love with them. Because it's there when we're on the ground and recognize our folly and our failures, that's when love can pick us up. I can't make it happen. I can only discover it when I'm on my face, when I've fallen, when I've let go. So don't trust in your beauty. Trust in his love. That's how we fall in. So Father, I pray that for those of us who have not seen your love being offered to us, that you would help us to see it, to know it, to feel it, to know it deeper than knowing that through trust and surrender and letting go, we would fall into that which you have laid before us here tonight. Some of us have been holding on so desperately lest we touch that mysterious relationship that you offer. Some of us like who we are, like who we've been, because it's something that we've made. It's something that we can feel certain of. It's something we have a grasp on. But Lord, let us stop reducing ourselves. Let us let go.